Well, today we want to talk about this Word of God that uh, we can root ourselves into. And uh, one of the things that uh, I have a confession to make is that I'm kind of a Dear Abby uh, fan. It depends what city I'm living in. It's either Ann Landers or Dear Abby, you know. And uh, one of my favorite Dear Abbeys goes back years ago where this guy wrote it and said, Dear Abby, I've been living simultaneously with three women, and last week they all found out about it. How can I get things back the way they were? And then he put, P.S., don't give me any of that morality jazz. So Dear Abby wrote back and said, Dear Sir, the very thing that distinguishes man from animal is morality, and since you're obviously not interested in that, I suggest you consult a veterinarian. So, <laughs> But uh, here was a, a Dear Ann letter. And I, w- I just want you to listen to this for a second. Dear Ann, for, pe- for heaven's sake, stop pushing religion. Anyone with half a brain knows that your readers are, for the most part, simple-minded, superstitious dimwits who can't face life without a crutch. But doesn't it bother you when you advise about the laws of God, a 2,000-year-old fairy tale? One day I hope you write a column denouncing the God myth and then quit. The ultimate limit of human foolishness, the most preposterous bit of irrational hokum ever dreamed up by humankind, is the baloney found in the Bible. Such nonsense is for weaklings and idiots who are unable to think for themselves or accept responsibility for their own actions. Now, that letter is pretty extreme in its wording, but I can tell you that it's not extreme in the ideas that are expressed. Everyone has an opinion about the Bible, and I'd be interested to know what your opinion is about it. Is it trustworthy? Uh, I'll bet that there's a wide range of responses to that question in this room today. But however you feel about the Bible, you have to admit at least one thing. It's unique. You know, and that's not a subjective statement on my part. I mean, let's face the facts and let them speak for themselves. The Bible is unique in its composition. It is written over a 1,600-year period by 40 different authors who come from radically different cultures and backgrounds, and yet it carries an unmistakable thread of continuity throughout its whole whole pages. It's unique also in its circulation. The Bible is without question the most published book in the history of the world. Tens of millions of copies have been published Every year it is the number one selling book in the world, although you never see it on the, on the L.A. Times bestseller list, but, but it is the number one selling book. The Gideons have distributed over 1.5 billion Bibles throughout the course of their existence. And you show me another book that's been on the top of the bestseller list for 300 years, you know. The Bible's also unique in its translations. You know that it's the single most translated book in the world. And even though it's already been translated into over 1,200 languages, there is an army of translators today who are still working to translate it into other languages so that other people groups can can read it. The Bible is unique in its durability. It has survived bans and burnings. It has survived ridicule and criticism. Kings and, and governments have tried to eradicate it. But it lives on and it continues to spread. And then the Bible is also unique in the effects that, it, that people claim that it's had on their lives. You know, people read books all the time, all kinds of books on all kinds of subjects. And most of the time when they finish a book, they either stick it in the closet, put it up on the shelf, or they sell it at a garage sale. 
But serious Bible readers never seem to finish it, or when they do, they're tempted, they're, they're never tempted to put it away. They start all over again, and they go back and they study different portions of it. And over the course of years, millions have studied this people. They witness to the fact, this book, they witness to the fact that the information that they learned in this book has altered their worldview. Somehow it has changed their relationships and their values and even their view of eternity. Now, not many books seem to have that kind of effect on the lives of people. I think you would agree. In fact, all over this city, there is people who will be meeting later this week, hundreds of people, to study it, to talk about it, to try to apply it to their lives. Now, there's, there's no question that the Bible is unique. Now, let's talk a little bit about how the Bible came into existence. If, you're, if you've been a Christian for more than five years, would you just take a minute right now, turn to the person sitting next to you, and explain how we got all 66 books into the, into the Bible. Would you do that? <laughs> just kidding, but I'll take a shot at it. You know, Jesus would travel from place to place, and he would teach, and his teaching struck a chord. It changed lives. It did something to people. In fact, there is a classic comment as Jesus is uh, at his crucifixion. It's recorded in the Gospel of John. These Roman soldiers are trying to explain why they didn't arrest Jesus. And one of them said, no one ever spoke the way this man speaks. Of course, back in those days, people didn't have tape recorders. People didn't go to the Sermon on the Mountain and have notebooks with fill in the blanks so that they could get everything that, that was said. Initially, Jesus' life and teaching weren't written down. They were just passed on because they were remembered and retold. Now, I've hit that age where I can walk into a room and forget why I walked into the room. But, uh, so you might wonder, how could they remember things accurately if they weren't written down? And I think here's kind of a, a learning fact for us this morning. In the first century, people were living in an oral culture. You know, we're used to being inundated with words. We have the, the newspapers and books and the Internet and stuff like that. But, but what percentage of the people in the first century could read? One scholar that I read, John Crossan, in his book called Excavating Jesus, says that in the ancient Mediterranean basin, our best guess is that the literacy rate was about 5%. And he goes on to say, in ancient Israel, the best guess is about 3%. So that means that when Jesus was teaching, only 3 out of 100 people would have been able to read the Old Testament Scriptures at that time. All right, they didn't just sit around reading or watching football on TV at night or playing computer games. They sat around and they were around a fire and they told stories and they shared wise sayings. They would even recite genealogies, and this was a way that they would kind of get a sense of uh, tribal unity. You've probably experienced that sitting around like a Thanksgiving table. You say, Mommy, tell us about Grandma. Or we start to rehearse some of the stories that we've heard. If you've been around kids, you know that they sometimes have a favorite book. I can't remember the exact title of this, but the character was named Froggy. And when my daughters were young, whenever I'd say, what do you want me to read you tonight? They'd say, Froggy. And so I bet you I read that book at least a hundred times to my daughters. 
And uh, I think they watch certain videos like a hundred times, like uh, uh, <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> oh, man. And they would just go around and, you know, recite all that. Well, after a while, I would get sick of telling the story, of reading the story. Or sometimes I might be in a hurry because I was tired or I had things to do. And so I decided what I would do is I would skip a paragraph or I even would skip two pages and just jump over with the hopes that they wouldn't recognize what I had done. And they revolted. No! You've got to read every page, Daddy. They knew the story frontwards and backwards. And in Jesus' day, in that culture, that's all people knew was oral tradition. They, they were just as bright as we are. They just were illiterate. You know, they knew the stories of Jesus and His teachings, and they were well equipped to preserve them. I've even watched high school kids stand behind their parents when their mom or dad starts to tell one of those good old days stories, and the kids are mouthing the words behind their parents, word for word, the exact story, while their parents are telling the story. And there's one of the reasons, I think, that Jesus told so many stories. Scholars estimate that about 80% of what Jesus taught was either a story in story form or in some kind of structure that's called parallelism that was designed to enable people to remember easily the things that he had said and then to repeat it. After several decades of this, the eyewitnesses of Jesus began to get old, and by this time the church is growing rapidly. And there were a lot of false teachers who would distort things that Jesus said. Church leaders recognized that they needed to write down Jesus' story, things about His life and His teaching, so that it would outlive them, and also so that there would be a uniform way that it could spread to other churches around the world. This is probably why and how the Gospels were written. Over time, other documents about Jesus were were written as people talked about Him. And this is what you would expect. And some of those were what's called the Gnostic Gospels. Now, I know many of you have either seen the movie The Da Vinci Code or read The Da Vinci Code. Gnosticism was a form of thought. Loosely, it was a form of religion that emphasized a lot of secrets and what I would call concealed information about whether or you, if you were on the inside, you could have this information. It's what the, uh, Stephen Brown called the Illuminati. These Gnostic writings had stories in them about Jesus, and they were widely divergent from the kinds of things that we read in the New Testament Gospels. The early church leaders realized that they needed to have certain criteria that would help them decide which of these documents, which Gospels should go into what became known as the canon. Now, canon is a good word for us to know. It it comes from the Greek word, which means the norm or the standard, or the rule. They wanted to know which of these documents can be trusted, which ones are reliable, which documents ought to be canonical, the standard, the rule. So church leaders developed three different criteria to evaluate these different documents. The first criterion they ask is, does this document have its roots connected to the apostles? Was it written by an apostle or an associate of one of the apostles? And you know the four Gospels. Matthew, who was a tax collector. Levi, who became one of Jesus' disciples. Mark, who was a companion to Peter 
and biblical scholars would argue pretty convincingly by, by all the data that we have that, that Peter pretty much is the author of Mark, but it's Mark who recorded all these events that he's telling about Jesus. Luke, the dearly beloved physician and best friend of the Apostle Paul, he also wrote the book of Acts. And then John, who was in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. And by the way, those other New Testament books, such as the letters of Paul and John and James and Peter, they all met that same criteria. It's important to understand that most scholars would agree that all of the books that are in the Gospels that we have in the New Testament were written within 300 to, or 30 to 60 years after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. In other words, they were written while there were still eyewitnesses around who could challenge every word that was in them. And they had to meet the task of being read by people who were alive when Jesus was around so you know, people could say, no, I was there. That, that's not what happened. The Da Vinci Code talks about the fact that there were many other ancient books about Jesus, and it suggests that somehow the church was trying to cover them up. In reality, essentially, all of those books were written much, much later than that 30 to 60 year period after Christ's death and resurrection. In some cases, they were written centuries after Jesus, after eyewitnesses had already passed away. They were often given fictitious and misleading names. The Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Peter. And even though they were written centuries after these folks had died. Well, the second criterion as to what got into the the New Testament, into the Bible, was that in order to be included in the canon, the contents of the book had to be consistent with the kind of teaching that Jesus did. There's one account in Jesus' life which uh, was probably written 50 years after the Gospel of John, which, by the way, is the latest of the New Testament Gospels. It's the Gospel of Thomas. It's in the Da Vinci Code. And some have argued that this Gospel should have been included in the canon. Now, here's one reason why it wasn't. I'm going to read you the very last part of the Gospel of Thomas, and you decide how consistent it is with the teaching of Jesus. Simon Peter said, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, aren't you glad that didn't make it into the canon? And this leads to the third criteria that was generally applied. In order for a document to be included in the canon of Scripture, it had to have widespread influence on the churches of Israel, in Asia Minor, and in Rome. And so there had to be a continuous acceptance and use by the church at large. Now, it took some time, and there were a few documents where the decision was very, very difficult to whether or not it would make it into the canon. But the, but the Gospel and the other books that, that were included in the New Testament are the ones that met these three standards. One historian put it like this, None of the non-canonical Gospels comes close in date of composition, in breadth of distribution, or proportion of acceptance. Not one. So let's ask the bigger question. Is the Bible accurate? I mean, more than a few people raise that issue, don't they? You know, they say, of course it's inaccurate. It's it's riddled with myths and contradictions. It has nothing to do with historical fact. Well, the truth of the matter is that the Bible passes the historicity test with flying colors. 
And that's impressive because the Bible makes hundreds of references to historical events and places and people. And so there's plenty of opportunity for contradiction in the historical record. In the few cases where there have been contradictions between the biblical account and the historical account, archaeological discoveries have tended to prove that the Bible account is the more accurate account. I'm going to give you two examples here. In the New Testament, they make frequent references, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, frequent references to a nation called the Hittites. You know, they had a lot of the Hittites, the Moabites, the Jebusites, the Uptites, you know, and... uh, And historians had never been able to come up with any trace of the existence of the Hittite nation. And, of course, the question of the credibility of the Bible by making reference to these groups was brought up. But in 1906, there was an archaeological dig that confirmed the existence of the Hittite nation. And not only that, archaeologists unearthed the capital city of the Hittites and 40 other cities that made up the empire. So the biblical account was the more accurate account. In Daniel chapter 5, the Bible references a a king by the name of Belshazzar. They said he was the king of Babylon at the time. Well, the historical record says that Nabonidus was the king of Babylon at that time. And so it seemed like a clear-cut contradiction. Historians said, obviously, the Bible's wrong. It's an open and shut case. We have proof Nabonidus was king of that era. But in 1956, archaeologists unearthed three stones that contained the inscribed information that solved the problem. It seems that Nabonidus decided to lead his armies to a foreign country to go into battle, and so he installed his son as the king in his absence. And his son's name was Belshazzar. And so once again, the Bible passed the test of historical accuracy. In fact, over the last hundred years, scores of archaeological uh, finds have solved what once seemed to be unexplainable because of contradictions between the historical record and the biblical record. And it's the renounced Jewish archaeologist Nelson Gluck who said, it can be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference, not even once. Now, in the handful of remaining, what I think are minor conflicts between history and Scripture, I think school is still out. But I think that we can fully expect that the Bible's track record of accuracy will continue to stand. Now, beyond being historically reliable, I think most people have no idea how much manuscript evidence there is that backs up the Bible's credibility. And here's what I mean. When you're a student in college, before you even show up at your first football game, you usually have to read something by Plato or Aristotle. And nobody questions the content of their works or the reliability or the historicity or whether or not their writings have been passed down through the ages to us in a responsible way or whatever errors might have crept into these writings along the way. They're just accepted at face value as being an accurate representation of what the authors originally wrote. But do you know that there are less than ten existing copies of their ancient handwritten manuscripts? Now, I want you to take a guess. How many existing manuscripts there are of biblical documents that have been passed down through the years? Would you say 20 or maybe 50? Wouldn't it be great if we could say there was a hundred? Because then we could say there's ten to one more manuscript evidence uh, than Aristotle or Plato's writings. 
Friends, there are 14,000 existing manuscripts that help us compare and study and make sure that the information from the Bible has come down to us accurately throughout the years. I'll just make one little sub-note here. You know, uh, some people say, well, you know, you have the King James Version and now you have the New International Version or other versions. Well, the, the point is that the King James Version was taken after a text, an ancient biblical text that was discovered uh, long ago. But then archaeologists uncovered a text that was even dated before that. And that is where we get our NIV translation because it comes after the further you go back to manuscript evidence, the, the, the greater accuracy the feeling is you're going to have historically. And so um, that kind of maybe gives you a sense of that. I heard a story about a, a Catholic monastery where they were translating the Bible manuscript-wise, and uh, the one young priest said to the Monsignor, Father, wouldn't it make sense, rather than making a copy and then putting that away and making a copy after the copy, that we made all our copies off the original manuscript? And the priest thought, hmm. So he went down into the basement, and he's down there so many hours, the young priest became concerned. And he comes down, and there is this Monsignor just batting his head against the wall, and he goes... It says celebrate, not celibate. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> but simply put, the Bible has no equal with respect to manuscript documentation. And for you trivia buffs of the 184,590 words in the Greek New Testament, less than 1% have been put on the questionable list in terms of the grammatical sense or the the interpretation, whether it's an uh, imperative or an indicative statement based on the word ending. And so none of those words make any difference in the question mark in terms of doctrinal matters. So there's incredible accuracy in manuscript evidence. Okay, one other quick comment here. What would you say about the miracles that are recorded in the Bible, like floods and arcs and walks on water and healings and resurrections? How can we believe this? Well, one thing we have to make sure that we're talking about here, we have to make a distinction between God and the record of the activities of God, which is in the Bible. Now, next week I want to build a case for the existence of God. But my assignment today is not to give arguments for the existence of God. But listen, by definition, God would be all-powerful, eternal, and limitless. He would be capable of doing things that are extraordinary in the world. Fully capable of of some of the things that we read. Just by definition of the word God. Limitless, powerful, all-powerful, and eternal. He could put air conditioning and carpeting into a fish if he wanted to. Now, it just so happens that the Bible is assigned the task of recording some of the miraculous activities of God. And just because the Bible records them doesn't mean that they're fabrications or fantasies that were made up by the writers. Besides the miracles, the Bible records that these were all done in public places. They were witnessed by multitudes of people, believers and non-believers alike. Had they been fabrication, as soon as that account of those miracles was circulated, there would have been a public outcry that said, uh, you've got to retract that, it's not right. If the record wasn't true and accurate, it would have been laughed out of circulation in no time. 
But that didn't happen. In fact, there's more written evidence outside of the Bible for the existence of Jesus than there is for the existence of Julius Caesar. Now, there were plenty of eyewitnesses who could substantiate the biblical record, and they could say, I was there. In fact, I was... The funny story about a seminary student who the professor was trying to teach them that it really wasn't a miracle that the children of Israel went through the Red Sea. He said, class, uh, it was probably a drought that year and there was only two to three inches of water. And the student says, praise the Lord. And the teacher says, what do you mean praise the Lord? I just got done telling you there's only about two or three inches of water. And the kid said, that's a greater miracle than I thought. And the professor says, what do you mean? Well, he says, think about it. All of Pharaoh's army drowned in three inches of water. So, just one more point on the issue of the accuracy of the Bible. And I I would say this is more subjective. But I have to admit that I have found the Bible is accurate in what it has to say about me. Painfully accurate. I've never read a book that speaks so truthfully about who I really am about my human tendencies, about my nature as a man. I've never read a book that gets to the root issue of my character and my relationships and my values and my decisions and my morality. And I have to be honest and say, quite often often I wish the Bible weren't as accurate in its appraisal of me. Here's one other important question, maybe the most important, is the Bible inspired Or is it just a collection of religious stories penned by human authors? Well, you should know without apology that the Bible claims to be inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16, Dave read it a minute ago, all Scripture is inspired by God. The the literal Greek translation is God-breathed. 2 Peter 1.20 says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit recorded the things spoken by God. And hundreds of times in the Bible, you'll hear this expression, thus says the Lord. Now, the Bible asserts that God guided the hearts and the thoughts of men who recorded through their human personalities and their different personality styles exactly what he wanted to communicate to people in written form. But then, of course, some people may say, okay, the Bible claims to be the inspired word of God. But is there any substantiating evidence that would back up that claim? Well, yes, there is. And the first one would be this, fulfilled prophecy. Because the Bible was written over a 1,600-year period, many of the early writers made predictions of events that would happen in following centuries. I mean, they went out on a limb and they said things like, under the inspiration of God, we're going to tell you what's going to happen down the pike. And I think I could build just a convincing case on this alone, the inspiration of Scripture based on fulfilled prophecy. You no doubt have heard somewhere that the birth of Jesus was predicted several hundred years before his arrival. And these prophecies had incredible accuracy, like saying what lineage he would descend from, what city he would be born in, his manner of birth, what his ministry would be like, how he would live, how he would die, how he would rise... And friends, I'll tell you, how how could anyone account for these prophecies being fulfilled to the letter hundreds of years later, apart from admitting that somehow God must have played a part in authoring these written prophecies? I want to give you one or two other quick examples here. In the 5th century B.C., there was an important city on the Mediterranean coast called Tyre. The prophet Ezekiel 
made an assertion that, that Tyre would one day be restored and it would never be built on again. Now, obviously, the people who heard this prophecy, they thought he was a little deluded. I mean, it would be like me announcing that L.A. is living on borrowed time and predicting that in the next couple hundred years there will be, you know, 50 golf courses where the downtown L.A. now exists. You'd, you'd have worries about me, I'm sure. In fact, you probably already do. But, but a few hundred years after the prophecy by Ezekiel, that prophecy was fulfilled in amazing detail. The city of Tyre was just utterly destroyed. And if you go to the Holy Land today, you can take a tour and you can go to the flat rocks that once provided the foundation of that city. It's never been built on since. So how do you account for the fulfillment of that and hundreds of other prophecies in Scripture apart from the fact that God inspired those writers? You have to weigh fulfilled prophecy as evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. And I would also say that Jesus stated repeatedly and categorically that the Scriptures were the Word of God. In fact, He made this statement, Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of God will endure forever. And so as to the question of whether or not the Bible is inspired, I can only say it claims to be. Fulfilled prophecy is strong evidence to support that claim. And Jesus was entirely convinced about it. So when anyone says, the Bible's full of bad history... That's just not factually responsible. And I have a sense, it's not a factual sense, it's just an intuitive sense, that people who make statements like that have never really done their homework. And most likely, they've never even read the Bible completely. Usually people who make sweeping statements about the Bible's credibility haven't read it or studied it. So how responsible is it to hold a position of the Bible but never have done your homework? Now, I listed several books in your, in your uh, study notes there that you can check out if you're interested in pursuing more reasons about this. Now, just before we close, I just want to stretch your minds for, for one, one or two minutes. If you just stay dialed in, I think there's a big payoff here. A few years ago, William Kirkpatrick wrote a book entitled Why Johnny Can't Tell Right from Wrong. And I just want to use his arguments as one more reason for you to believe in the Bible. He talks about values and where they come from and how they're transmitted from one generation to the next. And in the early part of his book, Kilpatrick asks, how is it that so many young people seem to have lost their moral compass altogether? How is it that what was clearly understood as moral and appropriate 40 years ago is laughable to the point of absurdity today. Why is it, he asks, that 135,000 American students carry weapons to school each day? Why do 21% of high school students try to avoid using the school restroom because they're afraid of being attacked? He wonders why 33% of high school teachers are so disillusioned by the immoral behavior of students that they say they're leaving the teaching profession. He wonders why suicides among young people are up over 300% in the last 30 years. And so he goes on and he, and he builds a statistical case, you know, using drugs, unwanted pregnancies, the New York Yankee fans. Obviously, you know... He says, we've fumbled the ball somewhere in terms of the values ball. And then he does a beautiful job of tracing what I would call the, 
the, the downward progression of what's happened. I want to give it to you in summary form. From the first century on, people spent little time wondering, where do you look for values in your life? They just looked to God. The Judeo-Christian value system was the code. And the Bible was the centerpiece of those values for the overwhelming majority of people in the Western world. Now, for sure, no one really lived up to those in terms of perfection, obviously. But the point was, at least they knew what they were, and they knew where they came from. They knew who wrote them. They were accessible and understandable, and they were unmistakable. People aspired to live by those values. Parents taught their children those values. I don't have time to develop this fully, but an example of this would be the value of courage, David and Goliath. Or the value of helping others, the Good Samaritan. Or the value of risking your life for something that's worth risking your life for, the story of Esther. You know. And church and holy days and sacraments tied people to the author of these transcendent values. Kilpatrick says that the scenario kind of rolled on century after century until we come to the Age of Enlightenment. And during a 150-year time span, three thinkers emerged who said, don't bother looking up anymore. Actually, there are more than three, but I just want to touch on three real quickly. First, you have Immanuel Kant, who said, what must be trusted is reason, pure human reason. And the short story of him is that he felt it was demeaning for humans to simply look up and learn from a transcendent code. And and, uh, so he said, figure it out for yourselves. What values and moral choices are right for you? And this became known as rationalism looking to the human mind to derive a value system for our moral choices. And it had quite a following. The next enlightened thinker who agreed with Kant, but he said, instead of looking to your mind to figure out what's right and wrong, you should look to your heart. And this was Jean Rousseau, who was a Swiss philosopher. He argued that children were born with beautiful hearts and that if parents would just let their inward beauty unfold without a lot of pressure or coaxing in regard to biblical values, that children would eventually just blossom into roses and lilies and not into dandelions and poison ivy. Now some of you are wondering, did this this guy have kids? (laughs) He did, five of them. And he wound up putting each of them into an orphanage. But to Rousseau, each person's heart was bursting with goodness. And eventually that would flow out of them as long as nobody kind of interjected a repressive religious value system on them. And the third thinker was Friedrich Nietzsche. He said, don't waste your time looking up for anything because no one is home. God is dead. He said, look to your mind, that's rationalism. Or don't look to your mind, that's rationalism. Don't look to your heart, that's romanticism. Nietzsche said, look to your will. Take charge of your own life. Make up your own mind in in this world and write the rules that, that you want. Biblically based values were for weak people to hang on to for personal solace. Strong people should resist any and all attempts to, uh, that anybody made to, to put on them some transcendent values. Incidentally, Adolf Hitler was powerfully affected by Nietzsche 
And he quoted him. He said, the strong have an inherent right to rule in whatever way they see fit. Of course, about six million Jews paid the price for Hitler's fascination with Nietzsche's philosophy. Now, I could list a lot of other philosophers from the Age of Enlightenment, but here's the point I'm trying to make. From this time until now, a shift has taken place, a shift away from the values of the Bible. It's a shift toward looking within ourselves, our minds, our hearts, our wills. And that's what should define how we should live in this world. And the question we need to ask is, where has this thinking brought our society? And more importantly, where is it going to take us? Kilpatrick builds a compelling case to suggest that if we stay on the path that we're on right now, instead of looking to transcendent values of God as revealed in the Bible, we are facing destruction as a society and eventually the destruction of our world. You can't throw this book out and expect a utopian society to somehow emerge magically. And here's a straight scoop. You unhitch me from the teaching of this book. You allow me to make the rules and to find right and wrong. And I guarantee you that between now and my last day, I will shipwreck my life. You buy the lie that looking into your own soul is far superior than looking to God's clearly revealed values. And it's only a matter of time before the wheels will start coming off of your life. And here's the deal with me. I've been a Christ follower for... Well, probably 45 years. And to this day, I stand in awe at the southward gravitation that pulls me in my life towards sin. And it makes me rationalize almost everything that I do wrong. I'm telling you, friends, I need this book. I need the relentless reminders of what is right and wrong. And that's my final reason to believe in the Bible. Because if we don't read it, and we don't heed it, we're going to be on a crooked path. And we're going to be on a weak foundation. And one day we'll wreck our lives. And I just want to tell you, if this book is unique, and if it's accurate, and if it's inspired, and if it's God's message to you and to the world then you ought to find out what he's trying to communicate to you through it. You better find out. Because if this book is true, it makes some sweeping things, has some sweeping things to say about your life and your eternity. But you're going to have to read it, and you're going to have to be convinced in your own mind about it. And so I hope you'll take God's word seriously at this point. Now in the for what it's worth department, and it might not be worth much, but I want to tell you, I believe personally, and I'm not talking to you as your pastor now. I'm talking to you as a fellow human struggler. I'm convinced totally and completely about the truth of this book. I'm trying to submit myself to its authority in my own life. I have no regrets for building my life on the wisdom of the Bible. I have a lot of regret and a lot of remorse over the things I've done in my life that were opposed to what the Bible told me to do. I have agony over times that I've disobeyed this book and I've paid a price for it. But I have no regrets for building my life on the teachings of this book. This book has led me to a saving relationship with Christ. It's helped me to understand that my sins could be forgiven. 
This book is showing me how to build a marriage with someone whose temperament and personality is at the opposite spectrum of mine. And I know my wife would say amen. (laughs) This book is teaching me how to raise my son and my daughters. It helps me to build friendships that last. It tells me how to handle my money. It tells me how to treat my body. It tells me how to reconcile relationships when they get bruised. It's comforted me in sorrow. It's strengthened me in weakness. It's kind of rebuked me when I've gone wayward. It's affirmed me when I'm on the right track. This book has given me a perspective for my past. It's given me wisdom for my present. And it's given me a hope for my future. This book describes the place where I'm going to spend eternity. And I suspect that probably many people know enough about the Bible to steer clear of it. Because they know if they read it, it will speak truthfully to them. It's going to call them to give an account before a holy God. It's going to bring up matters like sin and repentance and judgment day and heaven and hell and how I treat my wife and how I handle my money. And I suspect that a lot of people berate the Bible and degrade the Bible and make false accusations about the Bible and stay a country mile away from the Bible because they're so bent on carrying out their own plans. And they don't want to hear a word from God. They don't want an accurate assessment of themselves. And I'll tell you, it is far easier to criticize the Bible than it is to yield yourself to allow the Bible to make its appraisal of you. And so I hope that, you know, in a court of law, you don't have to give, uh, build a case beyond a shadow of a doubt. You build a case beyond a reasonable doubt. And I hope today I've given you reasonable reasons to believe in the Bible. Let's pray together. And so, Father, as these folks read and study the Bible this week, may it have the unmistakable ring of authority and inspiration. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.